here. I remember the night that Donald Trump won the, the presidency in November of 2016. And at the time and, and for days, maybe weeks afterwards, I felt about that night as the happiest night in my life. So how, how on earth did I have such a shallow life that uh, you know, Donald Trump winning the presidency would for me be the happiest day of my life? And so here's my thesis. The emptier your life, the more vulnerable you are to needing a hero. The more extreme you, you need a hero, the more extreme your desire and intensity for, for a hero, the more you are vulnerable to gurus, to cults, to you know, making dramatic life changes like converting to, to a new religion. So I remember when I was visiting Oxford, Oxford University in the city of Oxford in England in 2005, and this, you know, young, stocky man came up to me and whispered something to me about if I was a supporter of a particular football team. And I said, no, sorry, I'm a, I'm a tourist, and he just moved on. But if I had been a supporter of this particular football team, he would have beaten me up. So... I don't think we can look at soccer hooligans in Britain as examples of a life that works. And people who have a, a strong need for rescue, be it religious salvation, secular salvation, right? Generally speaking, you know, people have a strong need for a hero, someone who has a fanatical devotion to sports so that their well-being, their psychological well-being now, ebbs and flows depending upon the fortune of their favorite sports teams, right? That's obviously not a life that works. It's a compensation for pain and for a life that doesn't work. I remember when I was a little kid, I wanted to become a Christian missionary. I wanted to sacrifice myself on a cross to save the world from sin. I wanted to go to deepest, darkest Africa and India and save people for Jesus. Now, do you think I came to that extreme devotion Right, from a place of happiness? No, I was a, a miserable, miserable kid. People thought I, I looked and sounded and moved and talked like a Holocaust survivor. Right? And so out of that mis misery, I desperately wanted some kind of heroic role for myself. I desperately wanted heroes, so I adopted people like Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. I, I saw these people as, as heroes. And so I, I noticed just moving through the world, the more extreme someone's devotion to sports the more extreme someone's devotion to politics, and I'm not saying in the kind of 10,000-foot uh, level devotion that we have to politics on this show, but I'm talking about a strong emotional attachment to you know, whose side is winning, to you know, which politician is on top, right, the more unbalanced the life. Right? The greater your need for a hero, the greater your need for rescue, the greater your need to rescue other people, right? the, the bigger the hole in your soul. It, it just seems so obvious to me now. Like, how on earth... Was I so ridiculous that I fell for you know an internet uh, radio guru like uh, Dennis Prager, and when I was you know, badly ill in my twenties with chronic fatigue syndrome, I was spending my every last dollar on sending Dennis Prager tapes to you know everyone I knew, where I spent a thousand dollars on a gypsy in 1998 to try to restore my you know imaginary relationship with with Dennis Prager. Like, why did I spend thousands of dollars on a homeopathist? Homeoph uh, a practitioner of homeopathy, right? I, I wanted rescue from my miserable condition. Why do I use Pittsburgh as my safe word, right? I use Pittsburgh as my safe word because it is so painful to me 
that the Dallas Cowboys lost two hard-fought Super Bowls to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 1970s, and that's still my, my safe word today. I mean, what the hell? How, how on earth is that still, you know, my safe word today, you know, 40 years later? Like, I, I'm still, you know, I'm still traumatized <laughs> by the Pittsburgh Steelers defeating the, the Dallas Cowboys, right, in, in some football games. And so, I mean, other people, right, they seek, uh, whoa, stop, cut that out. You know, other people seek, you know, erotic adventures to, you know, try to bring some, some meaning and purpose I- in their life. And uh, that's not a winning formula either. I mean, like ne- needing... What? Oh for, oh, for God's sake, Mark, we've both got one, haven't we? Look, Jess, can, can you please just keep it quiet? Because some of us have jobs to go to. Mark, your job is... Have you watched this excellent English show, Peep Show, came out in 2003, right? So Jess, one of the two main characters on it, like he is, you know, storming the erotic heights, all right? He wants to, to be a hero in the bedroom. And I remember in some of my relationships, I had nothing really going on in my life. I was failing in every area so that it was particularly important to me to be a hero in the bedroom and to have a, a passionate, fulfilling, you know, romantic and erotic relationship and i just you know put all my eggs on the erotic quality of, of my relationship which did not help that relationship last very long i and so i would pursue intensity in eroticism rather than intimacy right just trying to fill that hole in my soul like young jess in season two episode one of Peter going Jones. to the office my job is having sex yeah that's what i do now that's what i am i'm a sexer okay sorry mark did we wake you we're both coming so hard we didn't notice the volume an explanation finally thank you nancy thanks for the explanation so your orgasms may come at okay, the price so of dance class you know and other people right having having a good night's sleep so there's nothing in rock now this is you have to take into consideration try tapping her phone the effect of your orgasms on you know hope they're not doing it in the hall there's nothing erotic about a hall, is there? Hello, I'm coming in now. This is me coming into my house. So, when I was in the throes of this addiction, I was doing things with, you know, inappropriate people in inappropriate places at inappropriate times, just like young Jess here. All right, Jess. Is Nancy around? No, just gone. I'm seeing down the rhythms. Right, okay. Jess, wh- why is the chair and what's all this... Strawberry oh, and nine my and a half weeks, yogurt. guys. You can't Jeff, what's happened to my Muller? Too seriously. Oh no, you haven't, have you? you? You haven't been sexing it up in here with my yogurt. Have you Relax, been sexing Mark, it up? It's all right. We were just feeling very horny. I don't want to know. Okay, I, I don't want to hear about it, and I don't want it using up all my yogurt. And right, guys, it's not okay to use other people's yogurt in your sexual adventures. They're not going to be very happy. So all these things that we try to do to plug the old hole in the soul and for some it's devotion to donald trump i mean i would just notice the fiercer someone's devotion to, to donald trump or the fiercer someone's devotion to barack obama you know that 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 feeling that they had this you know parasocial relationship uh you know this imaginary relationship right obviously the more off kilter someone was bloody shower gel well, i'm just in a very erotic relationship right now i mean We're systematically breaking down all the taboos that society has. Right, and love 
romance? I mean, is there any romance in any of this at all? Who needs romance when you're doing it up the bum? Exactly. Exactly my point. I mean, if you've actually done that, which, by the way, I can see no point whatsoever in myself. You'd love to try. I mean, this idea that you don't need romance when you're doing it up the bum, I mean, that's that's so empty. Buy it. I honestly would not. What, what is this modern obsession with that? Look, Jez, what I'm trying to say is, so, for better or for worse, the 60s happened, and now sex is fine. But can't we take the best of that? The nice music, the colours, the I have a dream, etc. But not have to face the squalor. Right, so what happens when you're empty inside? You'll seize on the one thing that you know helps you feel a little bit better. And then you'll pursue it to an absurd degree like me. You know, buying thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of you know, Dennis Prager tapes. You know, dropping thousands of dollars on a homeopathist. Uh, you might want to give that a bit of a rinse, actually, mate. Do I really have to do this? What are you afraid of, Jeremy? He's dressing up in blackface. This All is done. so racist. I don't man. know. It just feels almost wrong. We're breaking a taboo. Of course it feels wrong. We've got Black boundaries face. to smash, Jeremy. It's our duty to God, Shiva, Nasdaq, whatever you want to call him. But are you sure this isn't racist? racist. Jeremy, racist. I come from America. I've seen the problems race brings up. Now fuck me and pretend I'm your mom. What? Why? Why? You can't imagine your mom having sex with a black man? That's pretty racist, Jeremy. Well, it's not that. It's just... Mum? Really? Really? Mummy? Mummy? Oh, I'm sorry, Nancy. I can't do it. I oh, man. What a wimp. What a wimp. Sad. He just... Uh... I mean, are you so racist that you can't imagine your mother having having sex with with a black man? Is that is that how racist you are? So, are you holding out for a hero? Like some people just adore people like uh, Elon Musk, right? He, he fits you know, that that giant hole in their soul for a hero. The integrator, right? I mean, that's how that's how he would frame his role, right? Yeah. That he's the guy. He does the systems level thinking, that kind of that like one level above the kind of. So you sort of relegate the kind of scientists and engineers to, to the kind of, you know, they're getting their hands dirty, um, uh, you know, with with the kind of myopic focus on, on on little details. But but what where it's really at, where where the real you know sigma thinking is happening is at the level of integration, um, you know, seeing seeing the bigger picture and all that. And it's it's very sense makerish, right? Like this is the kind of this is the kind of person that the sense makers would valorize right oh uh, yeah it, you know, he's the being, being, hero yeah it's like being it's like a it's like the generalist is 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 a is a kind of someone that doesn't deal with anything specifically but, but kind of puts their all the jigsaw puzzles together and can see the bigger picture and make the leaps that 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 the other people that have got their noses too close to the grindstone can't see it's it's turning that into the sort of instrumental category so it's it's really interesting actually i didn't get a chance to talk about this but one thing that the mask episode and everything made me think about is how about many of these gurus it's kind of like a reaction to the modern age like the modern age is one of specialization because you have to specialize right um the you know there's just too much knowledge like the age of the kind of gentleman 
um, scientists, you know, doing experiments in chemistry and figuring something else out with optics and engineering a, a different kind of steam engine. Like those days are gone. Um, it, and and the the other thing that's gone is 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 the idea that like a person kind of like does things all by themselves in a way, like makes a great leap, just just goes away and lives in a little hut, and then and and then you know has has this great revelations all by themselves. Like before, that that could happen to one degree or another, but more and more advances are kind of happening via huge teams of like thousands of people all kind of working together because that's just the way science and technology is now. So the valorization of of gurus more generally, but also Musk in particular, is kind of like a reaction against that. Like we, we don't like the idea of like specialists and we don't like the idea of these like anonymous teams of thousands of people. We want to make it personal and 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 we want to we want to have a role for the for, for that kind of personal heroic figure. Um, so so yeah, I, I think Musk, um, you know, the or, or the legend that is sitting around Musk, it's not just Musk driving it. It's people's it's people's desires. I think we we, we sort of want some, but we want there to be people like that, even even if they can't really exist in the world anymore. Um, so yeah, um, sorry, it's a bit of a yeah, so at best, the, the hero is going to be situational, right? Someone who's going to slaughter your enemies is probably not very likely to be faithful to his wife. So uh, someone who's, you know, faithful to his wife, a, a good neighbor, right? And, you know, a kind, uh, considerate uh, person at your local church, he's you now unlikely to make, you know, tremendous technological or military breakthroughs. So... For, for those yearning for the hero, right? The hero can just arise in particular situations when his particular strengths meet the particular needs of the situation. But that's that's about it, right? If a man comes along, meets the needs of a situation, all right, we will impute to him charisma because he seemingly pulled off the impossible and he gets more resources, more followers, he's better able to pull off, you know, something heroic again, but eventually he's going to fall on his face. A little bit more here from uh, Decoding the Gurus, talking about Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins. He likes his ivory towers, and so do we. Okay. Yeah. And he, Dawkins, even on vaccines and stuff, right? Even though you know, we might like Billy Daddle with Matt Ridley and whatnot. He's, he's still fundamentally like, but vaccines are great, and you know, science is finding things out and stuff. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Science, science is still the establishment, thank goodness. Um, grievance mongering. <laughs> uh, I'm going to put Bill Maher. Hi, on this, like, didn't you feel in that oh, yeah. thing he, he was luxurious? Like, these people, you know, presenting my experts, they call me anti facts. Have you heard about the way I'm portrayed? And yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. There was a strong undercurrent of grievance there. Again, this is something you see with anti faxes. Um, yeah, I'm not being respected. But, but not being, yeah, that's right. People haven't got any, but that's, that's kind of how all anti faxes feel, especially public ones, because they get upset because people call so them the anti faxes. Idiots. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna give them three. I mean, wrong four but that's okay no but, come on you need, some, you need to leave some headroom chris for the people there's headroom there's a five man <laughs> there's a five. more headroom there's a lot that differentiates this from from, a, from a, the brett weinsteins or the eric weinsteins of the world brett's a five that's we right. need a bigger scale we need to mark them 10 even <laughs> yeah, though we need a bigger scale <laughs> um i actually wanted 10 originally but that's fine that's fine um, um richard dawkins actually has a fair bit of grievance towards religion yeah he um, does and he does have a grievance towards his enemies i think as well there's people he doesn't like we had that feud with gould um there was a fair amount of grievance on both sides <laughs> That's right. They, he does, but you know, academics often do have grievances 
Dawkins, like, I feel like Dawkins in some ways is benefiting from my view of, like, Jordan Peterson, <laughs> right? Who is just constantly reeling at fucking toilet paper recently, but also every interview with him is unfair. Everything is, yeah. the, they're all like to get him and he yeah. can list like a hundred enemies. Dawkins yeah. isn't like that. No, no, he's not like that. Even but, some people he doesn't but, like. But, but the honey Chris. I know, he <laughs> no. does have it. So that's what I mean, he's a proto but, version of, because he did that one honey tweet, which the internet was very happy with for like a week. <laughs> but unlike Jordan Peterson, he didn't continue to tweet like a hundred times a day about you know various topics about and whatnot. So yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean you got to you got to imagine the baseline for a grumpy old man. Um, yes, <laughs> there's, a, man. There's, there's a baseline level of grievance um, with that demographic. Um, so I don't know. No, I can't really. Uh, I can't rate him high, even though I know he endorsed like uh, James Lindsay and stuff. But like... but it's not because he's got a personal tale of grievance. Um, no, you're right. About how his Two. ideas are being suppressed and all that stuff. I'm giving oh, yeah, you one. Right. I'm giving one for me. People that score in the normal range, like for a normal human being, is a one. Is a one, right? And for, yeah, but and Dawkins is a normal human. Abnormal. Well, he's not normal. In, you know, in many respects, but with respect, respect to his level of grievance, I'm saying he's in the normal range. He probably is, but yeah, for me too, he's in, you know, it's a higher band of normal. Um, self-aggrandizement. Bill Maher. Mm. I think he is self-aggrandizing, but he does it in a little bit the liberal self-deprecating way. You know, like the, I'm a stupid, like, what am I? I'm just a, you know, uh, idiot guy anyway. I just like to get blitzed and, you know, street, people. sometimes people straighten out my funny notions. Like he's a comedian, right? So they... Have to have. A, I mean that they have a self-deprecating error. Yeah. But, but we do that too. We yeah, but that's that what I'm saying. So he doesn't self-aggrandize. Oh, right. That's the that's why he doesn't oh. score highly on this, even though he is quite an arrogant son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm gonna give him. A, I want to put him a three. I'm gonna give him a three. God, you're, you're off the leash. Now I'm giving them both one. Yeah. Okay, that's uh, Chris Kavanaugh, Matt Brown. There applying the garometer to. Bill Maher and Richard Dawkins. So one of the uh, best Twitter accounts is by Richard Hananya. And he's got some good tweets of late in particular. Here he says, uh, watching these tech guys act as political and economic prognosticators is a pretty good argument for expertise and insight being very domain specific. So you have all these tech people uh, endorsing Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And Richard Hananya says the the RFK campaign is the best pure idiot detector I've seen in a while. I mean, even Tablet Magazine ran a glowing profile interview with JFK. Anyone who either likes RFK or thinks he has a shot should never be listened to again. Well, the political so-called experts said Donald Trump had no shot in 2016. I think that was part of the reason that I so enjoyed that he, he won. Uh, that's part of the reason that was like the happiest day in my life, right? In addition to the emptiness in my life, just that like all the experts were wrong was just hilarious. So here's a tweet. No one knows politics. It's just like sports and stocks. Just just a blast. Okay, Elliot Blatt, what's going down, bro? Oh, blessings, bro. Blessings. Uh, small RFK story. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, like 1995, I moved back to Boston. And, you know, in those days, we had to get temp jobs. We didn't have Uber back then. You had to get a temp job if you needed money real fast. Right. Yeah. So I got a temp job. I went to a temp agency and they put me at the admissions office of the Harvard Business School. That was my temp job. Wow. Like, you know, opening applications and preparing them for review. It was just a, you know, it was a, it was monkey work. But, you know, so, you know, I have to. You know, so so you'd get this and you get their GMAT scores and they, then you get their academic transcripts and. You'd have to put them all in a certain way and you staple this to that and paperclip this to that and 
and you'd have this one uniform package to present to the uh, unit the reviewers of the applications <clears throat> so this sort of kind of like a head rush for me back then because you know i felt like i was sort of you know on the cusp of power you know like uh it was a big deal back then to go to harvard business school it was sort of a, an express train to uh to the higher reaches of corporate America, you know, so people took it very, very seriously. And so anyway, so uh, while I was there, two noteworthy applications came through my possession. Um, one was the son of Robert Kraft. So do you know who Robert Kraft is? Yes, the owner of the New England Patriots. Yes. So his son was applying to Harvard Business School. And so this got noticed and called out and like, it was a big deal. This had to be sort of escorted into a separate room. You know, this had to be handled with utmost reverence because he was deemed, you know, a VIP and his application needed to be considered very seriously. The other was the son, one of RFK's junior's son. Um, I had to, you know, prepare his application, you know, get his application yeah. ready. And as part of doing that, I got to see his transcript, his his transcript from Harvard College, you know. And I looked at it and it was like straight C's. It was abysmal. So I, I I thought that was amusing. So anyway, that's that's my RFK story, bro. Okay, that's that's it pretty was, good. It wasn't RFK Jr. himself. It was one of his sons. So I don't know if he was admitted or not, but he was definitely considered uh, royalty, you know, to the extent that America has royalty. So you uh, you holding out for a hero, Elliot, on a scale of 1 to 10, how intense is your need for heroism or for heroes? Um, five. It's okay. completely neutral. I, I'll, I'll take one if it comes. I'm not expecting one. And you don't try to plug the hole in your soul with sports either. And 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 what role does politics play in your life? And it, it, with uh, regard to your happiness. Lately, almost none. <clears throat> almost none. I'm I'm kind of, I'm basically sitting out the entire election drama until October, yeah. and then I'll start reengaging because um, a lot of things can happen between now and then, and. I don't want to invest a lot of emotional energy in a what could be a dead end, you know. And it's arguable whether or not the election itself is a dead end, you know. So I, I, I'm 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 really standoffish this year. I learned my lesson. And uh, what do you think about uh, YouTube reversing its ban on uh, discussion of, of voter fraud? So you're now allowed to talk about voter fraud on YouTube. Uh, I'm thrilled, bro. I think uh, you know. Uh, more discussion, the better. I'm free speech, bro, all the way. I think everything should be discussed. I'm one of those, Luke. One of those. Even absolutes. even the JQ, bro. Even even the JQ, bro. I think <laughs> I'm I'm right there. I'm like, if it exists, it needs to be talked about. <laughs> so let's talk about it. And ha- have you caught anything interesting from uh, Chuck Johnson or Richard Spencer? Uh. No, but that's not to say I haven't tried. Um, now, Chuck Johnson did publish a new piece. I haven't read it yet. 
but I was listening to Richard Spencer the other night, and it was that guy, Mark Brahman, and they're discussing oh, yeah. Trader, was it Raiders of Lost Ark, and it's like, I don't know. I miss the old Richard Spencer. I was, you know. You missed the blood I, I, sports. You went blood. I missed the blood you? sports. I meant the fun. <laughs> I meant, like, have you ever read Locke? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have you even read John Locke, bro? <laughs> yeah. Those were the days, man. Like, now we're in sort of like this, I don't know, the penumbra, you know, the waning days of Rome. It's, we need something else, man. We need something else to raise its ugly head. We need a new figure to uh, captivate our, capture our attention. I mean, I think what you're touching on is it. it's really important to have, you know, excitement in your life. You know, you really need passion in your life. You really need some thrills in your life. I mean, without yeah, those things, you need a little spice, bro. You, you need, need some spice, spice, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need conflict and drama, I, you know, a moderate amount. I need some new ear candy. I'm, I'm like, uh, I don't know what to listen to these days. <laughs> I'm not part of, um, you know, any of these alternate platforms. I'm purely YouTube. So uh, I don't know. Everything that comes up on my feed doesn't really interest, doesn't grab me. It's sort of, uh, I have been listening to James Lindsay. Now, have you listened to any James Lindsay? Yeah. And I find his lectures really interesting. Yet, I've come to find out that he's more or less reviled on our side of the aisle. And I don't understand why. Do you? Uh, no, I mean, I, I just find him... Uh, I don't know, a slightly higher brow version of Scott Adams. Yeah, but don't you think, I mean, he seems to base all of his ideas. I mean, he has lots of sources, you know, and he has what seems to be a very coherent narrative. I think he's several standard deviations above Scott Adams, who was, uh, you know, very populist and very poorly sourced whereas i find james Lindsay, james Lindsay, very well sourced he's a bit like academic agent yeah so so you're not a fan of him uh, either what what happened to your enjoyment of academic agent um i i still listen um i don't look I don't have the same zest that I used to, but I'm sort of, you know, far less politicized than I was, you know, a year or two ago. So, you know, when I'm listening to these things, these are background, uh, yeah. this is background uh, entertainment. It's not, it's not like I'm looking at the chats or studying things or listening that carefully. I'm just yeah. listening sort of passively. So as far as passive entertainment, I think, you know, it's 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 interesting. It beats NPR. And uh, you're not a big fan of decoding the gurus. No. I, 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 they come from a place, their sort of basic frame, their orientation is just not mine. You know, it's it's an orientation that I think I rejected. So I just, you know, it's not like what they say is too outlandish, but it, it feels like watching The Daily Show. It's that sort of, they seem to have the, basically the same worldview of the writers of The Daily Show to me. 
you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're very, I've been listening to a lot of Red Bar lately. I've been listening to a lot of old Red Bar stuff. Um, <laughs> he is a very impressive character, the more I've come to eat. <laughs> he is incredibly quick. Uh, so I, I've been enjoying some of that. But if you kind of do this, I'm not subscribed. I only hear, I only hear it when I hear you. You know, I listen to it through you. So, you listen to it. On yeah, a regular basis? yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I really enjoy the academic analysis. I, I really find it it rigorous. Hmm. Stern. Stern. Intellectually huh? demanding. So I, I got some news on the radio front. So you know, you know how I've been listening to the Bone. Yes. Yeah, so the bone is sort of like a hard rock station, uh, but it's it go it, it it digs deep back into like the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know. So it's a very eclectic mix of sort of you know seventies rock, eighties rock, and then some sort of like nineties metalish kind of stuff. And basically, it was the only thing on there. But now, as of today. A new competitor to the bone has emerged on the radio dial, and um, I'm forgetting their name. But now I, I've been listening to them, and it's a totally different playlist. Now I should tell you that when I was in high school, we had a hey, we, went to, we went to the local radio station, and you got to see how the radio sausage was made. I'm sure you know about this because you've worked at radio stations. Yeah, but there are these quarter inch tapes reels that come in every week was this part of your experience yes and there's two of them like a and b and the the dj's job was to push like a and then b or a a b or a b b b a you know just to sort of vary the lineup very slightly but the fare on the radio dial was more or less preset by what was ever on these two reels and it was very mechanical. It was just a very uh, deductive algorithm that was presented. So, and you got the, nevertheless, they sort of, they, they would present this, this, uh, you know, facade of them sitting there with records and playing records uh, one at a time and flipping back and forth between the two of them. But really it was more, much more mechanical than that. And they would just push one button or the other. And, it was very disheartening for me to see that. Yeah, I mean, though, when when I was growing up in the eighties, it still was the most spontaneous medium that was out there. You could talk about things more quickly, uh, more spontaneously on the radio than certainly on TV, let alone print. So before the internet, the, the radio was the closest thing we had to, you know, live spontaneous discussion. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about like a, a rock station here, yeah. but uh, yeah, I do remember, I mean, you did back then, you did get the sense that the uh, presenters were individuals and they had a certain latitude that they could take and they would, they had a very distinctive personality, but today, you know, more than ever, it just seems like a formula that's being executed. You know, this demo gets this, these selections, we've market tested them and, here you go. Have you ever gotten into like a parasocial relationship where you, you know, listen to someone regularly, you know, have no personal interaction with the person, no private interaction, but you, you felt like you were developing 
you know, fair dinkum, or you had a fair dinkum relationship going on in, in your life? Present company excluded? Well, we, we've spoken <laughs> privately, so. <laughs> um, that hasn't played a big role. You haven't taken on gurus. You haven't, you, you, um, you parasocial relationships haven't played a big role in your life. I don't think so. I don't think so. It's not to say I haven't been fans of people and mm -hmm. enjoyed their work. And, um, but you haven't like been jealous of, you know, somebody's wife because she gets to be more intimate with your hero than you'd like to be. <laughs> no, I haven't taken it that far. No, no. Sorry, Luke. Um, uh, you got me, bro. Uh, no, I'm, I'm seriously trying to think about what you're saying. So it's like I'm, I'm trying to trace through my memory here. Um, like imaginary conversations with, uh, I don't know, Howard Stern or I, I don't know, who, whoever you're listening to a lot. Mm. You're not carrying on imaginary conversations in your head. No, 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 no. I was I always had a distance, you know, like, like, in fact, this new radio station, um, it has a different playlist altogether, and it seems to be oriented towards millennials. Mm -hmm. so, so the bone was more or less oriented towards Xers. And this new one is very 90s centric. And it's like all these songs, and I basically had given up the radio in the 90s. And because I was listening to NPR, you know, but I wasn't listening to rock and roll on the radio. And all these songs that came up and, you know, I'd heard one or two here or there, but they all seemed very new to me. So in a certain sense, it was really refreshing because it was not that standard bone fare, which is, you know, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Hark and all of these chestnuts that they just play over and over. It felt like a breath of oxygen. But I miss the radio, Luke. I, I remember like the, the radio used to be a journey, you know? It used yeah. to be, um, you know, you, you could expect something new. You know, if you didn't like what you're hearing, you could change something, you get something new. And it was, you, it was worthy of giving a chance. Uh, but not now. Everything seems uh, uh, dumbed down and boring. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, I mean, the best stuff's online. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But I, I still have these, like, romantic notions about, like, terrestrial note uh radio i'm just i i just don't want to give it up i can't admit to myself that it's dead you know do you listen to the radio ever uh no the only time i'd listen to the radio would be over the internet i mean i'm gonna australia's gonna be playing india in the world test cricket championship and so i'm gonna be playing that you know the australian broadcasting company radio coverage of the matches i'm gonna play that over my phone so that's in in june uh, that's starting in two days. Oh, just in time for LGBT, you know, Gay Pride Week month. What just a coincidence. <laughs> Haven't been a lot of out gay cricketers. Somehow professional <laughs> sportsmen uh, tend to be really gay. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm just teasing, bro. Well, anyway, I think that's all I got, my dude. Blessings, bro. All right, blessings. All blessings. right, next time. All right, shalom. Okay, take care.
Okay, right. so, so a lot of good stuff here on Richard Hananya's Twitter feed. Let's, uh, let's go back, have a look here. Take a scroll. You can even uh, subscribe to Richard, not just on Substack, but also on Twitter, I think, $3 a month. So in 2016, China banned TV shows and films from showing gay characters. In 2020, Shanghai Pride announced an indefinite hiatus. See, we're so much better than that. WeChat in China deleted a dozen accounts of college-run LGBTQ organizations. They also limit the amount of time that, that Chinese kids can spend on TikTok. The last Shanghai Pride Festival, a little less raucous than what you'd see in American cities. Russia has evacuated a town under attack the size of Bakhmut, six miles within Russia itself. Why believe Russia will resort to nukes and keep Crimea or anything else? Looks like they'll keep fighting a conventional war against Western technology. University of Connecticut now requires a course in anti-black racism to graduate. White women in Colorado have their own sit-in to ban guns where they weaponize their privileged. Those who benefit from student loan repayment freezes start racking up more debt in mortgages, credit cards. You can't protect stupid people from themselves stop trying this is why the argument that immigration will give us totalitarianism or socialism is done dumb public opinion is always socialist and authoritarian how do we ever have any freedom that's the question to ask uh, cornell west is running for president he has as much chance as robert f kennedy jr Texas law now bans local laws from being more burdensome than state laws in agriculture, business and commerce, finance, insurance, labor, natural resources, occupations, and property. Wow, free markets even in urban areas. Imagine that. Ted Cruz is arguing against homosexuals receiving the death penalty. The guy who argued the pro side of this prayed at Ron DeSantis' inauguration. Invisible. You are sovereign, and through your son, Jesus Christ, you rule and overrule in all the affairs of life. We thank you for your great love for people whom you have made in your own image. And we confess that we have not lived as we ought, and we've sinned against you. But we also confess that with you there is mercy that you may be feared. Thank you for delivering up your son to be the savior of the world. We also thank you for the provisions that you have made for us to pursue liberty, joy, and justice in your world, and for instituting government and all governing Okay, let's keep uh, scrolling here through Richard Hananias. How could kids want to become gay? What indoctrination? We're just preaching acceptance. No kid actually derives status from changing their sex. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Just imagine your kids going through that get to school in the morning. I think there, there might be a bit of a backlash, right? The last time we were this, you know, Western Civ was this pro-LGBTQ was during the Weimar Republic. What happened after the Weimar Republic? 
Richard Ananya says, you probably noticed a lot of successful Silicon Valley entrepreneurs being supporting right-wing candidates. Why is this happening? Understanding the tech right. Maybe we'll have to decide on having either higher taxes or cutting entitlements. This one's humiliating for the Russians. What kind of war effort is this? 26% of people in jail have a serious mental illness. 23% of police shootings since 2015 involve someone with a serious mental illness. Less than 5% of people with serious mental illnesses are currently institutionalized. Previously, it was as high as 29%. Don't think there's any way to beat Trump in a Republican primary. All advice seeing this is the worst by a wide margin. Striking how you can be a national conservative writer and having this bad understanding of the base. So this advice says that Rhonda Sanders should kill Trump with kindness and express confusion about Trump's attacks. LOL, killing him with kindness. Kindness, that's the trait that Republicans have been crying out for in the Trump era. This guy really gets it. The only thing that Republicans love more than kindness is a patronizing school mom tone. And the one they truly hate is dominance, which is why you have to kiss up to Trump. It's like the guy set out to create a psychological profile that was the polar opposite of the truth. And uh, here's another theory. Republicans just want to be entertained. That's like saying people watch professional, professional wrestling because their school teachers didn't make learning fun enough for them. Trump advisor, we've tested all of DeSanctimonious' attacks. Nothing reaches a plurality, let alone a majority of voters saying the contrast point would make them less likely to vote against Trump. It simply bounces off of him. Same story for eight years and back in 2012 when Trump wasn't even running. He was the, the favorite in the Republican primary. According to the New York Times, Biden's age is all that Democratic donors talk about. Aides keep him on a light schedule, hide him from the media. This is a good point. On the right, you see a persecution complex as part of a broader oppositional culture. They have to believe that to be liberal is always to have the advantage while being conservative always brings oppression. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the, the parasocial relationship. So why do people have parasocial relationships with people like uh, Jordan Peterson and... ...victim or a hero. And people very seldom do that, and it's no wonder. But I would say, perhaps, that I became terrified enough from learning what I learned that I tried to avoid the pathways that lead people to the dark places that they go. And there's something in that that might approximate good. Yeah, it does approximate good. I, I, <laughs> I, I would agree with that. The parallels between us are so eerie to me uh, that in my book on happiness, which came out in 99. Right. So we've got a couple of gurus here who encourage the parasocial relationship. So what's a parasocial interaction? All right. It's a psychological relationship experienced by an audience in their mediated encounters with performers in the mass media, particularly on TV and on online platforms. It's from Wikipedia. So viewers or listeners come to consider media personalities like Dennis Prager or, or Jordan Peterson. Uh, as as a friend, right, despite having limited or no interactions with them. So parasocial interaction is an illusory experience, right? You're interacting with personas, right? What you're getting from me now is a performance, right? Talk show hosts, celebrities, fictional characters, social media influencers, they are putting on a performance. 
but people often engage with them as though it was a real relationship. So why is this? The emptier your life, right, the greater your need for a hero, the greater your need for parasocial interaction. So parasocial interaction, you get exposure to someone you find interesting, and it becomes a parasocial relationship after repeated exposure to this persona causes you, the user, to develop illusions of intimacy, friendship, and identification. And so if you learn things that you like about the persona, this can result in increased attraction. The relationship progresses. Parasocial relationships are enhanced due to trust and self-disclosure provided by the media persona. That's why people who want to succeed in radio or live streaming, they're encouraged to you know, get intimate share, very intimate details of their life to you know, try to hook people. Media users tend to be loyal, feel directly connected to the persona, just as they feel connected to their closest friends by observing and interpreting their persona's appearance, gestures, voice, conversation, and conduct. So media personas tend to have you know, quite a lot of influence over their followers. So what type of person becomes a passionate follower of a guru? Right, Someone who's got a big hole in their soul. So the parasocial interaction means the one-sided process of media person perception during media exposure. Parasocial relationship stands for a cross-situational relationship that a person holds to a media persona. So these parasocial relationships fulfill the same type of needs that we all have for genuine relationships. If you don't have enough genuine love and connection relationship in your life, you're going to be much more vulnerable and needy and thirsty for these parasocial relationships. So particularly people who have a dismissive attachment style to others, right, they find the one-sided nature of the parasocial interaction to be relatively soothing. They prefer it to dealing with the messiness of people in real life. People who experience tons of anxiety from interacting with people in real life often find comfort in the lives of celebrities or online you know, personas. And uh, people online create content they earn money off their friends through memberships patreons other cash avenues and so the fans who pay up then feel entitled to specific specific details about the lives of the creators details about specific content so the divide between the creator and their work becomes a fine line so 40 percent of millennial youtube subscribers claimed in one survey in 2017 that their favorite creators understand them better than their friends and that's what it was like for me with Dennis Prager. Listening to Dennis Prager on the radio, I felt like Dennis Prager understood me better than almost everyone in my life. So a parasocial relationship is a form of psychological attachment, right? Where people feel like they're developing a genuine relationship with a media persona. They grow to depend upon the media personality. They make plans to interact with them. They count on them like a close friend. They develop a history with them. They believe that they know this person better than other people do. They feel like they have all the benefits of a real relationship with no responsibility and no effort. They can control their experience. They can walk away from parasocial relationships freely. So it's not as scary as real life interactions. So for some people, this kind of parasocial relationship leads to higher self-esteem, higher self-confidence, a stronger you know, perception of dealing with one's problems. You've got you know, stronger coping strategies. You've got a stronger sense of belonging. But these one-sided relationships can also reduce your self-esteem, increase your media consumption, increase media addiction, and you know, increase your delusions, right? A parasocial relationship is a delusion, right? Or frequently leave you lonely, dissatisfied, emotionally unstable, and feeling like you have very unattractive real-life relationship alternatives. So using parasocial relationships as a substitute for real-life social conduct, contact, right, tends to 
bring you down. I actually have a chapter on the necessity of having a tragic view of life. <laughs> and then I hear you speak of, like just now, this tragic view of life. And ironically, if you don't have that, you can't be happy. So it's just another example of, of, of this, and that you're getting this message out. If you want to comment on that, please. If not, I'll, I'll go on. I, I, you, you are such an, I watch you, and you're such an intense listener. I don't know when you're going to react. So <laughs> if you, Well, there's this old idea. Okay, so you're just looking at gurus at work who want to encourage a parasocial relationship uh, for, for, because they think they're doing good in the world, right? To make money, to enhance their own status and fame, right? We all have mixed motives. Right? Very different way of speaking compared to a genuine scholar like uh, Mark B. So Shapiro. We make a bracha. But there's no chiv to light Yom Tov candles. He so since there's no chiyav to light Yom Tov candles, even though our minhag is... Right. Mark Shapiro has no desire that you develop a parasocial relationship with him, right? He doesn't encourage this. Certainly. He argues this on the front page of the book. And in the discussion of this, uh, he mentions all the... Um, the different views. Uh, he says, by the way, the very first page. Uh, he's speaking about there's no source uh, in the Gaonim or the Rambam or the Gemara or the Midrash that you make a, that you like. Uh, so someone with genuine expertise is highly unlikely to even want a guru role. They're not going to want a parasocial relationship with you, right? They're not going to want to give you advice outside of their area of expertise, right? They're not going to offer, you know, opinions outside their area of expertise. They'd be embarrassed to do so. They feel would feel uncomfortable with the spotlight that the guru commands. So just very different persona here from a genuine scholar like a Mark B. Shapiro compared to gurus such as Dennis Prager and Jordan Peterson. Candles on uh, Yom Tov. Uh... He says, "Ner shall yom tov, shall yom kippurim, ain makor b'shas, etc." But he gives uh, all the sources here um, on page uh, forty-three. The various as a machogus and tosvos uh, about. Um, he, in fact, he uh, you know the Rambam says you make a bracha on uh, the um, the Shabbos candles. So Ratzabi says this is a proof against all those who say that everything the Rambam says has a source in the Gemara, because uh, there is no source in the Gemara, um, and therefore we see that the Rambam would take things. Uh... So yeah, just such a very different approach from those who are trying to, you know, encourage delusion in their followers. All right, David Brooks, New York Times, wants to smash the college admissions process. But uh, Mickey Kaus notes that uh, David Brooks willfully ignores the core horror of the meritocracy, namely the role of inherited smarts, as if the persistence of the elite is solely because they can pay more for Princeton review sessions, right? The elite are elite because they have overwhelmingly high IQs and, and live in urban areas where you know it's, it's easier to have a cultural and wider political influence when you network with other people. Right, it's not. Uh, it's not just because they get elite education. Right, uh, that the elite education only plays a a small role. So, had uh, had a mate asked me the other day if I had any expertise on buying a car, and I said, "Yeah, Steve Saylor wrote it," and and I said to him, "You know, white people don't buy cars, you know, on a lot from from a salesman. They they buy cars online. They find out, you know, what's the lowest possible price they can get, and then they, you know, they don't." get bamboozled by a salesman 
So this is from Outside the Beltway from 2006. You probably heard about this. Car salesman, quote, different prices to different races and to different sexes, right? So Malcolm Gladwell had this long-running dispute between himself and Steve Saylor over what it means that car dealers, quote, higher prices to black and female customers than to comparable white and male customers. So Malcolm Gladwell believes this is evidence of unconscious racism. Steve Saylor argues it's much more likely that car salesmen have learned over time that they can get more money on average out of blacks and women, therefore uh, discriminating against them as suckers, not out of bias. So if you can take advantage of people, right, you often will, right? It's a very rare person who's you know, not going to take advantage. And so if you leave yourself open, uh, if, you're, if you're vulnerable, you're trying to fill that, that hole in your soul, right? Someone's going to you know, come along and uh, take advantage. So here the Outside the Beltway, very mainstream, even center, center left website says the Steve Saylor explanation seems much more sensible. So Steve Saylor says, salesmen have learned over time they can get more money on average out of blacks and women and therefore are discriminating against them as suckers, not out of bias. So there's an economist, Robert Stonebreaker, who notes that uh, statistical discrimination is the real culprit. Blatant bigotry is not the cause. Rather, car dealers and car salesmen use race and gender to make statistical inferences about the consumer's sensitivity to price, what economists call price elasticity. In other words, taking into account someone's race or someone's sex or someone's ethnicity or someone's uh, religion or all these other stereotypes uh, tends to make you more effective in reality. So having like an intense 10 out of 10 in-group identity and just you know beating up and deploring and denigrating and denying out-groups right, in you know, today's Western world of relatively low threat you know, relatively high levels of, of comfort and, and safety and affluence, right? A 10 out of 10 in-group intensity usually isn't a, a winning formula. But simply noticing reality, that uh, different peoples have different gifts and different vulnerabilities, that makes you more effective in life. So most people, it seems like, who take the red pill, they become less effective in life because it leads them to, you know, an extreme in-group intensity that is not adaptive to reality. But Simply noticing stereotypes makes you more effective at life. So car dealers and car salesmen may know little about a particular customer, but they know quite a bit about statistical differences among races and genders. They know that women and African-Americans typically enter the car show showroom with less information, less proclivity to bargain. And this isn't just true in car showrooms, right? You have higher information people and lower information people in all sorts of areas in life. Although white males often salivate at the chance to lock horns with car dealers in a bargaining struggle, females and African-Americans are often unaware that bargaining is even possible. So many female respondents, more than one half of African-American respondents, believe that sticker prices were non-negotiable. My God. So there are all sorts of areas in life where men are just idiots compared to women. And there are all sorts of areas in life where women are idiots compared to men. And there are all sorts of areas in life where blacks have a far more realistic attitude. So it's quite rare that black people, for example, regard a pet as a member of the family, right? That's a ridiculous facet of white life. 
So Richard Posner of the University of Chicago Law School says, it would not occur to Malcolm Gladwell, a good liberal, that an auto salesman's discrimination on the basis of race or sex might be a rational form of the rapid cognition that he admires. It may be sensible to ascribe the group's average characteristics to each member of the group, even though one knows that many members deviate from the average. An individual's characteristics may be difficult to determine in a brief encounter. The salesman cannot afford to waste his time in a protracted one, so he may quote a higher price to every black shopper, even though he knows that some blacks are just as shrewd and experienced car shoppers as the average white, or more so. So economists use the term statistical discrimination to describe this behavior. So Steve Saylor notes, some of these guys have been selling cars for as long as you have been alive. And believe it or not, they pay close attention, not just to what makes the most money for themselves, but to what works for other salesmen as well. If the salesman's unconscious prejudice is costing the dealership money, his manager will make him highly conscious of it quickly or the salesman will be out on the street. So African-American buyers would charge the same price differentials by African-American dealers as if they were as they were by white dealers. So female customers were treated just as poorly by female salespeople as they were by male salespeople. So neither the race nor the gender of the car dealers or the car salespeople seem to matter. So if black men are treating other black men worse than they are treating whites because of racial animus, it must be uh, quite unconscious indeed. All right, interesting story here out of Japan. Showing again, if you leave yourself wide open, other people will take advantage. Hi, I'm Motoko Rich. I'm the Tokyo Bureau Chief at the New York Times. I'm reading a story I reported about a young woman who had a 10-year relationship in Tokyo with her professor and who later sued him for sexual harassment. She then was sued by his wife. So in Japan, there's a quirk of the civil code where someone who's been cheated on can actually sue the partner to adultery and win damages. I'm Japanese-American, but this law was a surprise to me, and it was really interesting and a little bit puzzling that this was still possible in this day and age. What you need to know before hearing this story is that Japan is a country with rigid age. Oh, hard to believe that this is still possible in this day and age. So this is a bad law, so this is a bad thing that uh, there are you know, legal safeguards, legal protections for, for marriage and legal penalties for damaging a marriage, right? I'm not so sure that this is a bad thing. And status hierarchies, and it's very difficult to say no or push back against someone who's your senior. Really? Really? It's difficult to say no? Like anyone who's senior to you, they can just ask you for sex and it's just very difficult to say no to that? I'm, I'm skeptical of that claim. Let's uh, let's let's hear this claim American, again. But this law was a surprise to me, and it was really interesting and a little bit puzzling that this was still possible in this day and age. What you need to know before hearing this story is that Japan is a country with rigid age and status hierarchies, and it's very difficult to say no or push back against someone who's your senior. It's also a country that has not yet wholeheartedly embraced the Me Too movement. So this is a story about a woman who had a 10-year relationship with her professor, but it started with a sexual encounter that she... So apparently Japan has not fully embraced the Me Too movement. I mean, is there any country or community that's fully embraced the Me Too movement? Like every movement right, has, you know, good good parts to it usually, but it, it quickly, you know, often turns into a con and a way to do damage and hurt innocent people. So fully embracing the Me Too movement... 
you know, it's going to wreak havoc on all sorts of innocent people. Like, you need, you need a little bit of uh, outside skepticism on even Me Too claims until they're substantiated. And uh, I, d- I don't find the woman's case here particularly strong, this student. He said was against her will, and he said it was consensual. So those were very difficult beginnings. And then they went on to have a relationship for 10 years in which she always felt that she could never say no and that she felt gaslit and perhaps even indoctrinated. He said that it was completely consensual and that it was just, as he said, a free love relationship all along. I actually met Meiko Sanno about a year and a half ago when she approached me to tell me her story and I spent many, many hours interviewing her. And then we reviewed the court record, attended court testimony. We attempted to reach out and invited comment from both Mr. Hayashi, her professor, and Mrs. Hayashi, his wife, but they both declined to comment. I think what's complicated about the story is that obviously the relationship went on for a long time. And I think there will be people that will see different perspectives on their story, but it certainly speaks to how tangled and difficult relationships can be and how power dynamics affect the way different people perceive the same relationship and how power dynamics can make it very difficult for someone to extract themselves from a difficult relationship. The prominent art history professor and his student had finished dinner and were strolling along the river in Kyoto, Japan's picturesque former capital, when they stopped at a bar. For months, they had been spending a lot of time together, and the professor had... Okay, if you're a woman who's spending a lot of time with a man, he, in all likelihood, is going to try to have sex with you. Like, why would you spend a lot of time with, with a man if if uh, you're not interested in having sex with him. When men and women spend time together alone, they usually end up having sex. I mean, that's, that's just the way it works. So if this woman is not capable of saying no to sexual relations with someone who's senior to her or someone who seemingly has power over her, then she should have the court appoint a guardian ad litem. She's clearly not capable of adulthood. Right? There should be a family member or the court should appoint someone with, with the power to make important decisions in her life because she clearly doesn't have I'd it. I'd already kissed her once in a park in Tokyo. Now, after drinks, he invited her to his hotel where they had a sexual encounter that she said was against her will. He said it was consensual. From that conflicted beginning, they embarked on a clandestine, decade-long relationship that included furtive meetings, volleys of amorous notes, and several trips overseas. Over time, the student came to believe that the professor had taken advantage of the power imbalance between them, and that she had never truly consented to any of it. Okay, so she was voluntarily spending a lot of intimate time with this guy long before anything physical happened. And then she continued a sexual relationship for years and years afterwards. So if she's saying she's not capable of saying no to someone in authority above her, then yeah, time to to pick a a guardian ad litem. You're not capable of the responsibilities and privileges of adulthood. When she finally broke off the relationship, she made an official complaint to the university and sued the professor for sexual harassment. Her argument? that he had exploited his position as her supervisor when she was 23 to groom her for sex, assault her, and then fundamentally hold her under his sway for years. 
uh, she continued in their sexual relationship for many, many years after he presumably assaulted her. Right, what kind of person stays in a relationship for years w with someone who assaults them? And I'm tad skeptical of her claims. But in a twist, she also found herself sued by the professor's wife, accused of adultery and causing mental distress under Japan's civil code, which views extramarital relationships as an infringement of the marriage contract. In the end, the wife won nearly $20,000. The professor was fired last year for, the university said, conducting an, quote, inappropriate relationship. But the young woman lost her case when the court ruled the professor had never forced her to do anything against her will. The story of Meiko Sanno, now 38, her professor, Michio Hayashi, 63, and his wife, Machiko, 74, highlights the tangled state of sexual power dynamics in Japan, where women rarely bring, much less win, cases for sexual harassment, and where the Me Too movement has yet to take hold as it has in the West. Miss Sano knew her sexual harassment suit against Mr. Hayashi was a long shot, but she went through with it, she said in several interviews, to show how she had experienced, quote, but Why is this primarily about tangled power relationships in supposedly backward, you know, hidebound traditional uh, Japan, it seems to me much more about a broken person. Like, I was broken, right? That's why I chose gurus and spent thousands of dollars on gurus. This woman's obviously broken. I'm not sure it's primarily a story about uh, tangled, you know, power relationships. I mean, do you think I want to be this kind of traditional bloke, you know, holding on to, you know, outdated gender norms and, you know, clinging to my guns and my religion? And I could be an enlightened, you know, reflexive, you know, elevated, highly self-disciplined, you know, contained, protected, you know, modern liberal person. You think, you know, I enjoy just being this, you know, knuckle-dragging Neanderthal, and I could be as enlightened as the New York Times. Psychological abuse like grooming and gaslighting that Japanese are really not sure about. Although the case received muted attention... Well, many skeptical people are not sure about a lot of claims of gaslighting. You know, a lot of claims of sexual harassment and gaslighting are bogus, and some are real. But uh, there's good, good reason to have some skepticism. So Glib Medley says, groomed at age 23, the horror. The horror. In the Japanese news media, it roiled the Japanese art world and academic community where, unlike in the United States, few universities prohibit relationships between professors and students. At the same time, rigid age and status hierarchies are culturally pervasive, making it difficult for subordinates, especially women, to say no to their superiors, experts say. Within Japan, there is this culture where we should all try to get along, said Yukiko Sato, the director of Spring, a nonprofit advocacy group for sexual assault survivors. So if you are asked to have sex, you might find it difficult to say no. In court, Ms. Sano repeatedly made that argument. But Japan's laws on sexual assault do not mention consent, reflecting skepticism that anyone can be forced into sex without violence. Every society has status hierarchies. There's no way of getting rid of status hierarchies. Like, all you can do is change the basis of the status hierarchy. But in the end, if an individual is not capable of saying no to a sexual advance from her superior, then she should forfeit the privileges and rights of being an adult. In terms of sexual assault, there has to be a great threat, and the victim... I notice women are much quicker to claim 
victimhood and the claim that they can't say no. I mean, I think, you know, most men would be too, too ashamed to claim that they you know, lack the stuff to, you know, make adult decisions for themselves. But uh, both men and women will bend in whatever direction is getting socially praised and, you know, whatever works. So if claiming victimhood works, as we've seen since the 1960s, you know, more and more people will do it. ...has to fight back, said Mizuki Kawamoto, a lawyer who reviewed possible amendments to the country's sex crimes laws. The current law, she said, does not protect people who were, quote, coerced psychologically into saying yes. By contrast... It's a good idea to have some protection from law. You know, I, I think that's a nice idea. But one's primary protection doesn't come from law, right? It comes from your connections, your family, your extended family, your community, right? If you're part of a traditional community, people are going to be much less likely to try to take advantage of you, right? Because they know that they will have to reckon with the wrath of your community. Now, that puts a tremendous restriction on your personal freedom. But in turn, you get a tremendous amount of protection. Like a lot of Orthodox women or uh, traditional Christian women or just women who have a strong sense of self, you know, men would never even consider, you know, acting like predators towards them because these women are so formidable. On the other hand, men can smell you know, out the, the vulnerable woman. So if you're a vulnerable person, you know, you're a weak person, you can't say no, attach yourself to a community, to a family and an extended family, and, you know, take guidance from other people, right? A lot of people want all the freedom that comes with doing your own thing, but then they don't want to take the responsibility and the burdens and the consequences of doing your own thing separate and apart from a community, right? You're part of a traditional community. They will watch out for you. You're not going to get into this kind of trouble. But she didn't want to give up that degree of freedom. And so she chose to play the game. Laws in the United States and some European countries take into account that a victim may not be able to consent because of illness or intoxication or that an offender could exploit a situation of authority. In court filings, Ms. Sano said that after the first sexual encounter with Mr. Hayashi, since she wasn't covered in bruises, she didn't think of herself as a sexual abuse victim. The judge's ruling in March acknowledged a gray zone between coercion and consent, deeming it, quote, suitable that Mr. Hayashi had been fired. But in tearful remarks, Ms. Sano said the judgment did not take into account what someone who is in a higher position than you can actually do to your psyche. Although Ms. Sano lost the case, the court ordered the professor to pay her 1.28 million yen, close to $9,800. So this ties into the overall topic you're holding out for a hero, right? The stronger your need for a hero, the more vulnerable you're going to be, the more likely you are to get screwed over, the more likely you are to be taken advantage of by gurus, Right? There are a lot of uh, you know, gurus in the Orthodox Jewish community who would love to teach attractive women you know, Torah through the tip of their penis. A lot of you know, yoga gurus want to teach you know, attractive females through the tip of their penis. Uh, a lot of professors want to teach their attractive female students through the, the, the tip of their, their penis. So the more wide open you are, right? meaning the bigger the hole in your soul, Right, the more vulnerable you're going to be for people taking advantage of you, and it begins with 
you know, fundamental sense of dissatisfaction with your own life, with with your own choices, where you are in life, with your relationships, and you know, yearning for someone to come along and to make you whole, and to you know, give your life more meaning and, and purpose, and that leaves you wide open to predation. To take responsibility for his share of the penalties imposed on her in his wife's lawsuit. Tomoe Yatagawa, who lectures on gender law at universities in Tokyo, said Mrs. Hayashi's suit might seem, quote, a bit strange when the marital contract was between husband and wife, yet Miss Sanno was held responsible for breaking it. But experts say these cases are not rare. Mrs. Hayashi, who declined to comment for this article, said in court filings that she resented her husband for committing adultery, but that she did not believe he was guilty of sexual harassment. She accused Ms. Sanno of, quote, pushing all the responsibility of their relationship onto my husband, as if she is wholeheartedly the victim. Ms. Sanno met the professor in 2004, when she was an undergraduate at Tokyo's Sophia University and enrolled in Mr. Hayashi's art history course. He was a well-known specialist in modern Japanese art, with outspoken views on feminism and free speech. For a long time, their relationship was strictly academic. They discussed her graduate school ambitions. He offered to write her a recommendation and helped her secure an internship. The summer and fall before she began her graduate studies in 2007, the boundaries between them began to blur as Mr. Hayashi started grooming her, she said, for a romantic relationship. He invited her to regular teas. She felt she could not refuse. He would make suggestions for reading or study sessions for grad school, and it felt like he had expectations for me, Miss Sanno said, and I felt like I couldn't betray that. Some advocates say Japanese institutions like Sophia need clearer guidance about relationships between students and professors. The government recently called on universities to provide more information about counseling services for sexual harassment and violence and to disclose when disciplinary actions are taken. Any relationship between a supervisor or professor and a student is by definition harassment because of the desire to please someone in power, said Kazue Muta, a professor of sociology and gender studies at Osaka University. Mr. Hayashi, who declined to comment for this article, admitted in testimony that the relationship had been, quote, inappropriate because he was married and was Ms. Sanno's supervisor. But he said Ms. Sanno had consented to and even encouraged it. One of his primary pieces of evidence was a thank you card she and other students sent him after they joined him on a museum tour around central Japan the summer before Miss Sanno began graduate school. On the card, which she wrote in English, she addressed him as Dearest Professor H and signed her message XOX, a flourish not commonly used in Japan. To be addressed as Dearest in a message from a student to a professor, there is a familiarity there that is not quite normal. Mr. Hayashi testified. Ms. Sano said she meant the note merely to show gratitude and thanks. Mr. Hayashi said he and Ms. Sano grew closer as they spent time together, according to the court record. Ms. Sano confided in Mr. Hayashi that she felt like an outsider in Japan after spending much of her childhood in England. He assured her he understood because of his experience abroad. In the fall, when she began graduate school with Mr. Hayashi as her supervisor, she took a walk with him in a Tokyo park. He kissed her. Saying no and making him look bad was out of the question, she said. 
In court filings and testimony, Mr. Hayashi, then 48, said he believed he and Miss Sunno, then 23, were dating. Miss Sunno accompanied him on a trip to Kyoto that fall, where he was lecturing at an art symposium. She testified that when he asked her to join him in his hotel room, she refused him multiple times and said she should return to her own room. He said the decision to go to his room was mutual. Both testified that Mr. Hayashi performed oral sex on Miss Sunno, but she portrayed it as unwelcome. She said she asked him repeatedly to wait, signaling resistance, she told the court. But he kept saying, it's okay, it's okay, Miss Sunno said. Over the next 10 years, they regularly met in... So, yeah, one thing that uh, surprised me as I got to know women is how many complained about men who'd performed oral sex on them uh, the first time that they, they hooked up. They, they just thought it was way too intimate, and even though they orgasmed, they still felt icky about it. So it, it seems like women tend to regret sex that doesn't lead to lasting commitment such as marriage. Tokyo at so-called love hotels, with a mixing of academic discussion and sex. Mr. Hayashi reviewed Miss Sunno's thesis at one of these hotels, the court filing said. Miss Sunno sent him affectionate notes and accompanied him on trips to France, Italy, and Spain, both while she was under his supervision and after graduation. Mr. Hayashi said such behavior again proved the relationship was consensual, although he acknowledged he wanted to keep it secret. She said that her behavior was a sign of indoctrination and that she was afraid to be rude to her supervisor who had authority over her future career. When she would try to end the relationship, she said in court filings, Mr. Hayashi would accuse her of being paranoid or tell her she would never be able to date anyone else. She said Mr. Hayashi told her, you could sue me for sexual harassment if you wanted to, but you won't because you I just noticed a lot of people trying to use the legal system to fill a hole in their soul, to try to you know, right something wrong with them by you know, going on a legal jihad against someone else. I've seen a lot of people ruin their lives by, by doing this. They're trying to fix a hole in their soul by launching a lawsuit, and it destroys them. I remember this very attractive, very intelligent, highly accomplished woman who sued her supervisor for sexual harassment. She lost the lawsuit, and... She, I mean, she hit the wall hard. I mean, it, it just destroyed her. So, in general, not a good idea, it seems like, to try to use the, the legal system to fix a hole in your soul, you know, to fix a, a vulnerability in you. You're not that kind of girl. Mr. Hayashi said in court filings that he never made those remarks or coerced Miss Sunno and that they were simply adults enjoying a free love relationship. I understand that I was way too naive, and I still hate myself for it, Miss Sunno said. There were so many times where I could have just said no and run away. By the spring of 2018, Miss Sunno was working at an art gallery in Tokyo and broke off the relationship for good. She slowly began to tell her family and a small circle of friends about it and grappled with an overwhelming sense of shame. She said she began cutting herself and considered suicide. Shusaku Sanno, Miss Sanno's eldest brother, said his sister told him she had been brainwashed. I knew for sure that she was hurt, he said. Haruko Kumakura, an assistant curator at a museum in Tokyo who collaborated with Miss Sanno on an exhibit, said she was disgusted when Miss Sanno told her about Mr. Hayashi, 
a figure of respect in the art world. Okay, so you can admit you've done stupid things. Like I, that's a staple of my show, talking about all the stupid things that I've done. There's absolutely no need to hate yourself for having done stupid things for, for being human. Right? You didn't choose to be a victim. She didn't choose to be a victim. She didn't choose to be an idiot. I didn't choose to be an idiot. I didn't choose to be, you know, a victim of a, of a guru. All right. You know, I didn't choose to be a sex and love addict. I didn't choose to be a debtor and an under owner and codependent. Right. So you can admit <laughs> when you've made really big mistakes. And it doesn't mean you have to hate yourself for it. You can be at ease with yourself and just be be free that, yeah, I've done a lot of stupid, stupid, stupid things. Early the next year, Miss Sunno contacted Mr. Hayashi's wife. I just felt like I had to tell her the truth of what had happened and that I was sorry, Miss Sunno said. Miss Sunno also wanted his wife to know that she felt Mr. Hayashi... That's a horrible thing to do, right? She wanted to spread her pain. Right, hurt people, hurt, hurt people, hurt people, and she was a hurt person, just spreading the pain. That, that's just a horrible thing. Hayashi had manipulated her. According to court filings, Mr. Hayashi confessed the relationship to his wife, who filed her suit against Miss Sunno. In an email that was part of the court record, Mrs. Hayashi, through her lawyer, wrote to Miss Sunno, "If the relationship was coerced by my husband." you could have easily filed a complaint with the university from the start. Experts in sexual harassment say it will take more than legal action to change the culture. The commonly accepted view is that if a woman accepts a kiss or goes on a date, then it's consensual, said Ms. Muta of Osaka University, who advocates university policies barring romantic relationships between professors and students. We're struggling to change the climate, but we are not so successful yet. Ms. Sanno said she was now in therapy, coping with post-traumatic stress disorder. She lives with her parents and has not been able to work full-time since she left the art gallery in 2019. One of her primary goals, she said, is to recover my ability to say no. So do you think if to survive she had to work, she might suddenly recover the ability to work and to, you know, pay her own way in life, right? She's unable to work right because she has you know so many abundant options where other people will take care of her that uh, salvation will come from above and that she'll be taken care of she will be rescued that's it bye bye